Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Let's hand it over right now to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris. All right, thanks, Coop. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. Here's our first question. How could President Biden say this? I believe we'll see by the end of next week at home that it's passed. When he had to know that Senator Joe Manchin would say this. Political games have to stop. Holding this bill hostage is not going to work in getting my support for reconciliation bill. What I see are shell games, budget gimmicks. None of us should ever misrepresent to the American people what the real cost of legislation is. Doesn't sound like he's ready to vote yes. And I say the president had to know because, to be fair, Joe Manchin, you may not like his position. You may think he's holding up the party, but he's never said anything else in this process. In fact, Manchin didn't even get a lot of pushback this time from the progressives. Listen. The president said he thinks he can get 51 votes for this bill. We are going to trust him. We're tired of, uh, you know, just being... Uh, continuing to wait for one or two people. We trust the president that he will get 51 votes for this, and we will pass both bills through the House as soon as we have these final negotiations wrapped up. I would just urge everybody to keep tempers down. Sometimes this happens in final negotiations. Mm, Not really. Not within the same party. Um, This is somewhat unique to the Democrats. Now, to be fair, once again, the media loves the hype of deadlines and will it be now and will it be then? But, you know, the Democrats don't have to play into it and they keep being doing it. Look, I see all of this brinkmanship as hype, but the infrastructure and spending bills will pass. It's just about when and about how it looks for the Democrats. All this deadline drama is definitely bad for them. And it puts the president in the odd position of touting spending achievements that don't exist yet. He did it in Scotland today, playing up the $555 billion that are in to plan and fight climate change. He called it the, quote, most significant investment any advanced nation has ever made. Now, bragging about something being the greatest when it hasn't happened yet, ironically, made him sound a lot like the man that he apologized for today at the summit. I guess I shouldn't apologize, but I do apologize for the fact the United States, uh, the last administration, pulled out of the Paris Accords and put us sort of behind the eight ball. Well, Biden's now behind the eight ball at home as well. Forget the hype. What is the reality of action this week? Let's ask the deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Representative Ro Khanna. Good to have you back once again, sir. Always great to be on. So this week, yes or no? Most likely this week, but definitely yes. We're going to vote on both bills. Uh, Our chair, Pramila Jayapal, has made that clear. There's a lot of good things in there that it goes to the Senate. I'm convinced it will pass the Senate, but let's not put an exact date on it. 
So you believe it passes the House this week, not necessarily both houses? Correct. And I believe that the president will deliver the House version with the key priorities. It will have universal preschool. It's going to have the biggest investment in climate ever. And Chris, here's the thing. Look, President Clinton had almost 57 senators. President Obama, 60 senators. Biden is doing this with 50 senators. I mean, it's a pretty remarkable thing. It's not said often enough that having these kinds of thin margins don't make it that easy. And yes, I was getting beaten up by one of your sisters the other day for not being fair to the Democrats and going after you guys for your process when the numbers are so thin. But you know what? Too bad, you know, because this is the hand you've been dealt and you're going to be judged for how efficient you guys are within your ranks. Now, uh, in terms of what happens here, you guys vote yes on infrastructure, yes on spending. It goes to the Senate. They vote yes on infrastructure and say, now let's send that to Biden. But they do not vote yes on spending. What is your reaction? Chris, my understanding is actually as soon as we vote yes on infrastructure, it goes to the president because we're going to vote on the Senate's Senate's bill bill. without, without amendments. So that is the risk, that we vote on that, we vote on the uh, reconciliation bill, it goes to the Senate, now the Senate has to act. I am convinced that the president will ensure that that bill passes the Senate. Now, if they make any changes, it's going to be back and forth, but the key commitment that the president has made to us is that he has the 51 votes for our key priorities, and he didn't make that commitment for months. He only made it after uh, he thought he could get those votes. And that's why many of us are confident in that commitment. If Terry McAuliffe loses the governor's race in Virginia, do you think it's your guy's fault? No, I think it's the fault of the fact that the entire party uh, couldn't come together quicker. I mean, obviously, it would have been better if we had these deals done. And we have to, as a party, uh, think about how we can be more concerted and act more quickly. But I don't think it's any one individual's fault. I think that would be highly unfair or one caucus's fault. A question that, if answered honestly, will add much more gray hair to your head. Do you (laughs) believe the Democratic Party would be better served in its current constitution without Pelosi and Schumer as the leaders? No, because there is no way that anyone could navigate these slim majorities without the speaker's experience, Schumer's experience, or Biden's experience. I'll tell you why, Chris. You know, I've been in Congress three terms. Pramila's been in Congress three terms. You know so many people. Biden, Schumer, Pelosi, they know a lot of people with relationships. Those relationships matter. So are there things that I believe a new generation are better suited for? Yes, on understanding technology, on understanding new jobs. But when it comes to passing things with a slim majority in Washington, they know what they're doing. You guys are all talking about taxing the rich. uh, And that's where the money's come from. Now I'm hearing that you guys are also planning on fixing and that that word should be in quotes, okay, fixing uh, the state and local tax deductions, also known as SALT tax deductions, uh, that Trump took away from big states like Jersey, California, and New York. And the concern is, if you do that, that until that, you know, that the SALT taxes will net to neutral the taxes on the rich. Are you considering doing that? 
We are, but it would be capped, and it would help the middle class and upper middle class. Here's the basic point, Chris. You can raise taxes on people making over 10 million bucks, and those are the ones who've had the most wealth gain. You don't have to raise taxes on people making 200, 250,000 bucks, especially when their tax money is going to fund public schools, going to fund public health. And so the Democrats are for the working class, middle class, and upper middle class, and we're for taxing people over 400,000, particularly the ultra wealthy. But they, for it to be uh, accurate, the scoring isn't done yet. They need to see what is exactly in the bill. But if you do the salt tax, they say the way it's anticipated right now, the CFSB, that, you know, there's the scoring agency, that, what's the scoring agency? The people who are measuring what the impact of this bill would be in terms of positive and negative tax burden uh, says if what is planned to be in the salt bill is in there for the next two years, for those two years you guys would not be taxing the rich. You would, in fact, be giving them a break. I don't know how they're defining the rich. I mean, with the surtax, certainly millionaires will be taxed. With the increase in uh, the tax on enforcement, certainly the wealthy will be taxed. Now, the SALT deduction should not extend to people making over a million bucks. It has to be capped what that deduction is. If we do it that way, we'll still increase taxes on the ultra-wealthy, uh, but won't hurt the middle class and, and, and upper middle class. And that's fair. I mean, the people who need to pay the taxes are the billionaires and the uh, ultra-millionaires. I, I, I understand where you're coming from. I'm just saying that you better make sure that's the way it works. Otherwise, you know, you guys are going to have some explaining to do, uh, because if if this isn't about having the people, you know, basically like me, you know, carry their fair share, uh, then you guys are going to get beat up on it. So we'll see what happens now. Another thing that I don't understand why it's fair. Why is it fair to put this at Biden's feet? When I was listening to Pramila Jayapal, uh, her saying, look, we trust Biden. He says he can get the votes. Fine, we'll vote. Why is it on him? Because he came to Congress and he said, this is the framework I've negotiated. He's known Senator Manchin for a long time, and he's had hours and hours of conversation with him. I've spoken with Senator Manchin. I have a good relationship, and I've sp probably spoken to him for 30 minutes my whole life, and he's not going to tell me exactly where his lines are. The president came, and he said, look, on $1.75 trillion, which is half, by the way, of what the progressives wanted, on these priorities, I'm convinced I can get Senator Manchin and 50 senators to vote for it. And I, I believe he can. I, I don't think... He will shirk from that responsibility, and I believe he will deliver it. Uh, now, is there a tweak here or there? Uh, are some of the procedures going to be uh, have to be flexible? Sure. But at the end of the day, Chris, here's what people are going to remember. Democrats got every kid in this country preschool. Democrats got child care finally covered. Democrats made the largest investment in climate. That's going to be what the people remember. It's not going to be what did Kana say on Cuomo's show or Jayapal say or Manchin say. That's all going to be forgotten. Well, I don't know about that. This show is really... No, no. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, your, show may, may, your show may your, stand no, your point, the your point is well made. Although I would say this. Um, in the most recent pearl, uh, polling, only 25%, so one in four people, think that these two bills will help people like them. Something in the messaging of this didn't go right. Because if and when these pass, these bills may create over a million jobs... And we'll help a cut of people in this country that haven't been helped the way these policies are designed to help them since the New Deal. And it's interesting. Give me a quick explanation of why you think people don't get what these bills could do. 
because we haven't done a good enough job talking about what's in them. We can't blame the media. It's not your job to sell the bills. It's our job. And we should say, this is the biggest investment in the working class for decades. Working class families are going to get a tax cut. They're going to get 300 bucks every month for every child in their family. They're going to get money back if they're working class in their taxes from the earned income tax credit. They're finally going to have relief for childcare. You're never going to have to pay more than 7% of your income. Every kid who's three or four year old is four years old now is going to get to go to preschool and you're going to be able to do that. And by the way, billions of dollars of new jobs in solar, in wind, electric vehicles, and they're going to be all over the country, in, in the heartland, in the south. So we need to talk more about that, and, and we haven't done a good enough job doing that. Congressman Ro Khanna, always appreciate the candor, always welcome on the show. Good luck doing the work of the people. Thank you, Chris. All right. Now, look, Ro Khanna's right. Uh, this, it, it may not sound like, like, hey, I'm voting for governor in Virginia. What do I care about what's happening in Congress? I care about my pocket. True, true. Gas prices, uh, your home budget. True, true. But everything's kind of been nationalized now, if you think about it. Local politics kind of has been morphed into this big existential battle that everybody's in, this battle of division about, you know, what feels right and what feels wrong. And this vote in Virginia will be the first measurement we see of how a significant slice of this country feels about the new administration. So we're going to talk about it and we're going to bring the Wizard of Oz in to look at the numbers that make exactly this point, how it's been nationalized and what people are voting on in Virginia. Next. Why is the Virginia governor's race so close? Terry McAuliffe, Republican Glenn Youngkin. McAuliffe was a popular governor there in Virginia. Biden won it by 10 points. The suburbs are a huge deal there and they're breaking blue and they hate Trump. So why? Let's get some insight from our Wizard of Odds, Harry Enten. Tell us the story, brother. The story is simple. Glenn Youngkin has momentum in the final month of this campaign. You can see it very clearly in the polling average. Look, if a month ago, Terry McAuliffe was leading. He was leading by about four points in the average of polls. Now look at it. What do we see? We see McAuliffe's lead got sliced in half to two in the middle of October. Now Glenn Youngkin has a one-point lead. Now that's within the margin of error, but the momentum is clearly on his side. And if I were to make a little prognostication, while it wouldn't be surprising to me if either candidate would win, I would put a little bit more money on Glenn Youngkin at this point. Why? Why? Well, here's one reason why. If you look at right now, who are the voters who are looking most likely to turn out? What do you see? You see that Republicans are more likely to turn out than Democrats are. Republicans are more enthusiastic than Democrats. So if you look at the likely voters versus the registered voters, what you see on average among likely voters is you see that Glenn Youngkin holds a one-point lead. Look at all registered voters. Terry McAuliffe has a three-point advantage. Now, the question is, why does one side have uh, enthusiasm versus the other? You might make the argument it's what's going on in Washington, D.C. right now. You might make the argument that Democrats haven't passed very much of anything. I would also point out, though, that this fits a historical pattern that... That is that the party out of power tends to have more enthusiasm on its side because they're looking to punish the party of the president. So, Vaughn, uh, my uh, my producer just said to me, did you when you said the suburbs are breaking um, blue, did you mean red? No, I meant blue, because that was the story of why Biden won, was that Fairfax, 
uh, Loudoun, Manassas, uh, you know, as you get in the big suburban communities, they went very bad on Trump versus his first campaign, which was the big swing for Biden. Why don't we believe that will happen again? And even though the base for Trump in all of those smaller counties may go yunkin, he won't make it up in the population centers. Here's the reason why. There's no slides on this, but I'm going to give you the reason why. I'm going to pontificate a little bit to you. And that is essentially that if you look among white voters with a college degree, what you see is that Donald Trump is still quite unpopular with them. But Glenn Youngkin, at least according to the latest Fox News polling, what you see essentially is Youngkin's net popularity among white voters with a college degree is about 15 points higher than, than Donald Trump's is. They're about basically even among white voters without mm. a college degree. But Youngkin has been able to connect or at least limit the losses among white voters with a college degree in a way that Donald Trump simply could not. You know, we had been analyzing this race as a window into the national picture because we had seen early metrics that people were looking at their vote in Virginia through the lens of how they felt about Trump or Biden. Terry McAuliffe seized on that, made this race largely about Yunkin being another Trump. Yunkin went hard on the culture issues. What are they teaching your kids in school? What's going on with the masks? Who made the better bet? I think at this point, you've got to make, make the argument that Glenn Youngkin made the better bet because he's the one who's been closing in the polls. And more than that, look, he's tying this to national issues in some ways. And right now, Joe Biden is the president of the United States. And if you look at Joe Biden's popularity in the state of Virginia and you look at it nationally, what do you see? Look at this. Now, Joe Biden's approval rating in the state of Virginia is averaging about 45 percent. Compare that to his favorable rating on Election Day 2020. It was just 52 percent. That's basically the same trends that we see nationally, right, where now Biden's down to about 43 percent versus on Election Day. He was at 52 percent. And this is the thing that I think is so important when we're talking about why does Virginia have national implications? If you look at the last three cycles, 2009, 2013, 2017. Look at the approval ratings of the presidents on those days. Look at that. They were all in the 40s, somewhere in the low 40s, somewhere in the high 40s, but all in the 40s. And in all those cases in the following midterm, they Mm -hmm. lost House seats. Yeah. Now, look, they usually lose House seats anyway. Sure. um, In in that first term. You've had a couple of exceptions to it. It's usually a referendum and the American people tend to like balance. We don't know about how that's going to play out traditionally now in such an untraditional time. I like slide five. Uh, Because I think that it makes a very important point about the true risk for Democrats, which is enthusiasm and who's going to come out. Explain this. Yeah. So essentially, this is a poll uh, done by Monmouth University. It said, you know, how motivated are you to come out and vote? And what we see is white voters very motivated to come out in Virginia. Black voters make up about 20 percent of the electorate in Virginia. If Terry McAuliffe is going to win, he is going to need black voters to turn out in high numbers tomorrow. Right. Basically turn around that registered voter likely voter gap. Get it closer to a presidential year electorate. And what we see right now in the polling is black voters are not anywhere near as motivated as white voters are. So that's basically the one thing I might want to look at tomorrow is whether or not the black voters show up in those heavily African-American areas of Virginia, like in the southeast part of the state. If they do, then Terry McAuliffe may win when the polling suggests perhaps the opposite. See, that's the one basis where I think McAuliffe uh, may be struggling because of his party. And I'll tell you what, it even resonated in Italy, Harry. You know, the idea of people saying, ah, uh, you, you democrati, uh, perché non gli ma- uh, <laughs> Don't make me laugh. Sorry. Perché non gli piacciono Biden? Why doesn't his party, why don't they like him? 
And that is what I don't think the Democrats really picked up in this process. It's demoralizing to a a fraction or a slice or however you want to uh, break it up or apportion it of people who voted for you when it seems like you don't even want to do what they put you in there to do. And I think that's going to be a wake up call for them in this election because it's got to be close. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think what we've seen all along is that there are a lot of Democrats right now who have this low enthusiasm, who don't think that the folks in Washington have delivered what they wanted to accomplish. Yes, they did not want Donald Trump in office anymore, but it wasn't that they just wanted Trump out. They wanted someone to actually do something. And we know from the polling over and over and over and over again, there are a lot of Democrats who at this point feel that Joe Biden and the Democratic Party has not accomplished a great deal. And this is going to be the first real test that will show whether or not that keeps Democrats from home. And more than that, independent voters turning against the Democrats, because that was the one real vote that switched from Trump in 2016 to Biden in 2020. Now, McAuliffe could be hurt by this and the Democrats could still be okay in the midterms if they pass these two bills and people forget the process. And they do a much, much better job, like a 200 percent better job selling what is in these bills for people. Because as we just said in the last segment, a number you know well, only one in four Americans believe that these two bills will help people like them. That's bad messaging. Harry, I got to jump. Hi, goodbye. Lila I love you. Me. Goodbye. I'll see you back in the office. See ya. How much could the setbacks to Biden's agenda hurt McAuliffe and beyond? That's the question we're teeing up. We're going to bring in the good minds. Look at them. Come on. The intelligence is just flying off them. Then again, it's all basis of comparison, right? They got the meathead in the middle. Next. Now, the question should be, will the Democrats deliver Biden a win? But now the question has become, can Biden deliver the Democrats a win? Is that fair? Jess McIntosh, Michael Smirconish here to discuss. Uh, Ordinarily, um, I would start with you, Jess, but I'm going to put you on the defensive here. So I'm going to start with Smirconish. Um, The fact that Biden's got to find a way to close this deal, that they keep setting these deadlines that they're not sure that they can meet, that they have one in four Americans believing these two bills that are the most epic policy moves since the New Deal. Only one in four Americans think that they're good for people like them. What did the Democrats do wrong, Michael? So you're not connecting all the dots, right? This you is say that to me every that segment. You say that, by the way. You need a new insight. I maintain... <laughs> Okay, it's not an insult. I just want to close the loop for you. Please. Joe Manchin is the best thing to happen to Joe Biden. I don't believe in coincidence. You've you've got the NBC survey that comes out this weekend that says 71 percent of the country, nearly half of Democrats think we're headed in the wrong direction. Here comes the ABC survey where 32 percent of plurality say this is going to hurt people like me. Same poll that you've been talking about all night. Do you really think it's a coincidence that one day later Joe Manchin comes out and puts the brakes on the big spending bill? Because I don't. Manchin is forcing Biden to take a win for the one point two trillion dollars because they've so poorly sold the bigger bill. That's what's going on. Jess, do you think that the House will allow, um, you know, they'll, they'll get a little trapped here, right? If the House votes for the infrastructure bill that's already passed the uh, Senate without amendments, then it's going to become law. 
and they will be boxed out on the spending bill, what happens then? Look, I, I think at this point, everybody has worked too hard and come too close to meet to let this go. So if the House decides to vote on the infrastructure package, I believe that is because they believe that the second bill, the social bill, is secure. So I'm not going to be too concerned if I see that happening. I think this has been a really long and messy process, but these are the absolute worst hours of trying to pass historic legislation. Eventually, this will be an outcome story. This will not be a process story. I, I want everybody to remember how frustrating it was to try and pass Obamacare and how many times it was declared a failure because it didn't have the public option. And now it's recognized as one of the most powerful social safety net expansions we've ever seen. In a few years, that is how we will be talking about this. Every plank of the agenda being considered right now is wildly popular, reaching the kind of numbers that you can't get with just Democrats. It's also Republicans and, and most of independents. So I think once America American families can actually see what's in the package and then see it hitting their their checkbooks, their their inboxes, their ability to take their kids to daycare and care for elderly relatives. That's where you're going to see the American people move on. Oh, yes, this really does affect me and my family. Why isn't what Jess is saying how it's been sold all along, Michael? They try to blame the media for this, you know, that the media has been fixated on the bottom line, but the legislators have been fixated on the bottom line. It, it hasn't been a debate about any of the component parts. It's been a debate about 3.5, 2.0, 1.75. And don't overlook the fact that Joe Manchin today is relying on Penn Wharton analytics that say it is not 1.75 trillion, it's 3.9. And that analysis is not gonna go away. And I think that the climate now is just one of where Americans believe this is all too hurried, to spend too much money, and there's got to be too much waste baked into it. So I don't see this as resolving anytime soon. And I believe what I told you, Chris, I think that Manchin is doing Biden a favor, forcing a $1.2 trillion win where 19 Republicans in the Senate, including Mitch McConnell, were on board. Joe Biden gets a much needed notch in his belt. Jess, response. I mean, I've seen polls that suggest most Americans think that this bill is either the right size or not big enough. I think at this point, we have to start talking about what's in it. I mean, and Joe Manchin knows what's in it. He probably spent more time negotiating this bill than any other senior, than any other single senator. He knows that it meets all of the demands that he laid out today. He knows because he was part of those negotiations. And he knows that waiting for a CBO score is something that the Senate needs to do anyway. So it, it seems like this press conference didn't do anything to slow down the momentum with other Democrats on the Hill. It's just Joe Manchin being Joe Manchin. It's it's hard to make sense of what he's doing unless you assume that he just loves the attention, in which case this is a masterclass in, in how to get it. Now, when, when I advise candidates, I don't tell them to gain national notoriety by acting like they're standing in the way of one of the most popular agendas in, in recent memory. But he apparently is listening to other advisors and he is making his own choice. But I think this gets done and it gets done soon. Word choice uh, will be key here. You say notoriety. Uh, it's all about how it plays at home for him. Will it be notoriety or will it be fame? Uh, we'll see. Last word, Michael. Go ahead, Jess. More than more. Go ahead, kid. I cut you off. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying West Virginia actually needs these packages mm -hmm. more than most states. There aren't any billionaires in West Virginia. So 
I can't imagine that this is, there are a lot of West Virginians who are cheering for Joe Manchin taking down important social programs that they need while we're facing multiple crises. Polling shows the same, uh, but sometimes it's more field than fact, right? That's why Trump ran away uh, with that state. Last word, Michael. I think he's asking a question that all Americans, including those in West Virginia, can understand, which is, can we afford it? How much is it going to cost? Mm. Jess, appreciate you. Michael? You connect the dots. How do you like that? Why don't you connect the dots? Huh? You try connecting the dots a little bit better. No, I'm kidding. Thank you both very much. Take care. Thanks. (laughs) Every time he tells me I can't connect the dots. Maybe he's right. The Supreme Court considered challenges to the most restrictive abortion law in the country today. Now, I have to tell you, sometimes, and this is rare, especially with the Supreme Court. Now, many say that the law that they're looking at violates Roe v. Wade. Many say it was designed to violate Roe v. Wade. But I'll tell you what's unusual is to have Supreme Court justices seem to signal where their heads are the way we saw. We have someone who argued before the justices on behalf of reproductive rights in Texas. Let's get his take on what I think was made frighteningly obvious in court today. Next. The Supreme Court heard arguments in the most significant case on reproductive rights to come before, let's say, in the last two decades. Now, here's the part to pay attention to. Two key conservative justices, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, grilled lawyers defending the Texas law that essentially puts a bounty on doctors. There was a key moment when even Justice Kavanaugh equated the right to reproductive medical care to that of the First and Second Amendments. Listen to this. It could be free speech rights. It could be free exercise of religion rights. It could be Second Amendment rights. If this position is accepted here, the theory of the amicus brief is that it can be easily replicated in other states that disfavor uh, other constitutional rights. My next guest, Mark Herron, was in court today making the arguments for reproductive rights in Texas. Counselor, uh, good to have you on primetime. What did you make of Justice Kavanaugh's response? Well, I think it was a spot on question. You know, as we've been saying all along, although SB8 is an abortion restriction and it is the most extreme abortion restriction that we have ever seen, The questions today in front of the the Supreme Court were not just about abortion. Everyone, it seems like all the justices agree that this is a patently unconstitutional law. The question really is, can a state just decide, you know, the Supreme Court's precedents uh, and and the Bill of Rights uh, just don't apply in our state. And a state can just nullify a right uh, that has been recognized by the Supreme Court for 50 years a fundamental right by allowing anyone to sue anyone who exercises that right or provides care uh, to allow someone to exercise that right. And that doesn't apply just for abortion. Um, It could apply for guns. It could apply for uh, freedom of religion. Every single constitutional right is at stake. If Texas's arguments succeed and the federal courts can't do anything uh, when a state tries to nullify a right like Texas is doing here. Now, the real concern, though, for Roe v. Wade um, isn't this kind of, you know, punitive civil measure that they read into the or wrote into the Texas law. It's viability. 
Uh, and that's where the Mississippi law is going to come. Are you hearing anything from Barrett and from Kavanaugh or any of the others uh, that you take as a signal on that other issue? I didn't hear anything today, Chris, that signals uh, what the court's going to do. So uh, as you note, uh, one month from today, the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments in um, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is a challenge to 15, uh, Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. It's the first time the Supreme Court is considering a ban before viability. Um, and, and really, the state of Mississippi has asked the Supreme Court to overrule Roe to overrule Casey and to allow states to just ban abortion outright. So the the right to abortion is at stake in that case. It's going to be heard one month from now. I didn't hear anything today that uh, really signals how the court's going to rule in that case. What about with um, Kavanaugh but, saying, what, what about with, and I'll give you the final point, obviously, and congratulations on today being your first day before, uh, you know, the Supreme Court. That's something to remember. Um, when Kavanaugh was talking about, he was saying, you know, but it, it, we may change the law in the future. And what would that mean uh, in terms of everything that had been done um, while we were waiting in this period before we changed the law? What would that expose people to? Now, on one level, you could say, well, that's an ex post facto argument. You know, it, it, obviously, anything before something has changed is fine. And it seemed like a gratuitous point from someone who's obviously, um, you know, a legal scholar. So what was that about? You know, I think he was honing in or honing on on one of the worst provisions of this law, which is that it's retroactive. So that right. even if an abortion provider is providing um, in reliance on an injunction, um, and later that injunction gets overruled or the law changes, that they could that they could face retroactive liability. Um, and that's it's one of the many, many, many pernicious things about this law where Texas has created special rules um, solely in order to be able to turn the courts into a weapon to nullify constitutional rights. So I think, you know, he was really concerned about that. There are other parts of the law that the justices were really concerned about as well. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not going to try to read too much into any tea leaves into that particular question. It is a pivotal moment in our jurisprudential history, and you're a part of it. Mark Heron, thank you very much. And again, a congratulations on facing the court today. Thanks, Chris. All right, good luck. Ahead, new court filings reveal what Trump is trying to keep secret from the January 6th committee. Look, you can have any feelings you want about the situation. That's your right, okay? It's also a privilege to have a feeling that is free from fact. People don't hide things they're not worried about, okay? Plus, a former Homeland Security official who says he was ringing every alarm bell he could think of before the insurrection. He says he doesn't need the Trump documents. He knows what it was about, and so should you. Next. What is the name of the person who told you to buck the President Trump's plan and certify the votes? James Madison. (laughs) 
Former Vice President Pence just a short time ago in Iowa, vocally defending his role in certifying rather than delegitimizing the election results on January 6. And in a new court filing, the National Archives revealed for the first time what Trump is trying to keep hidden from the January 6 Select Committee. It is more than 700 pages of files from his closest advisors, visitor records, memos from senior White House staff, handwritten notes, draft documents, and call logs with Pence, all of which may tell us more about his role in the lead up to the attack. Remember, a document can't fail to recall. A document can't take the fifth. A document can't spin what it says. 187 minutes, the former president watched these scenes, but did nothing. This comes as the Washington Post reports incredible new details about that day and the numerous people who saw the violence coming. How? It was just spontaneous, right? Just a couple of kooks online talking about it, but they never expected they'd be that successful, right? Right? Donnell Harvin, the head of intelligence at D.C.'s Homeland Security Office, not only notified multiple agencies about the violent chatter online two days before the attack, but he also alerted the city's health department to call up D.C. area hospitals to prepare for a mass casualty event. Empty your emergency rooms, he said. Stock up your blood banks. Donnell Harvin joins me now. It's good to see you, sir. Thank you, sir. What did you know? Well, what, it, it's not what we knew. It's the threat picture that we had seen. Um, and so leading up to January 6th, we started seeing a lot of concerning information uh, surrounding the events that were planned. Uh, information from particular actors that we hadn't seen before, uh, specifically looking at what we call TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, uh, that indicated that they would be intent on uh, performing acts of violence, interpersonal violence, and possibly even smuggling weapons into the district. So how come we weren't more prepared? Well, you know, like, like you and, and other Americans, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the conclusion of multiple investigations into that. I can't speak to why what happened at the Capitol actually happened. Um, our job, uh, for, from my team's standpoint, was to collect, analyze, and disseminate threat information uh, to as many people as possible. And that's the role of the Fusion Center. That's exactly what we did. So... First, let's uh, get a sense of what it was, and then we'll get to uh, what it meant to you. Um, When you look at what you were seeing, do you believe that this was about uh, disparate sets of groups that were just equally pissed off about things? Or do you believe there was coordination of uh, intent and purpose? Um, I think it's a little bit of everything. Uh, So what we found, um, even leading up to the January 6th, what made us uh, really concerned was we saw a core group uh, or several groups of individuals that were well organized and and had uh, articulated uh, specific, as I mentioned before, tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, that would bring to bear a lot of violence in in our estimation uh, if they came to the District of Columbia. Um, Using a a large amount of people who were were there for their First Amendment protected activities um, as shields or even as a force multiplier for their more nefarious activities. Um, So do you believe that what happened on that day was just 
a chain of things that couldn't have been anticipated that, you know, well, the guards kind of let them go because there was too many of them and the Capitol Police weren't set up for it. And people started to enter the Capitol, but it was benign at first, but there were just some bad actors. Or do you think it was more intentional than that? Well, I'll be honest with you. Everyone's focusing on January 6th, Chris, but uh, the, the seeds of what happened on January 6th were planted a long time ago. And, and we've seen this fomenting in American society uh, well before January 6th. And I know everyone's focused on January 6th, and there'll be an autopsy, and it's ongoing right now. Um, but while that autopsy is occurring, we can't lose sight of the fact that the, the elements uh, that, that made January 6th possible are still there in our society. Um, even after January 6th, we started seeing threat information for individuals who didn't go to D.C., uh, who lamented that they hadn't been here um, and had uh, articulated that it would have gone differently had they not had they been here. And so there's a lot of people out there, not just who you saw on January 6th, that are of like mind. Uh, and, and I think that's probably the broader picture. Percentage chance you think it could happen again around another election event? Well, I, you know, I, I don't predict the future. I will tell you that um, there, there, there are individuals out there who have mobilized from radicalization and they're, and they're mobilizing to violence. And those individuals we need to identify and, and connect with. Um, Chris, these aren't some foreign uh, fighters that are coming over to our country right. to do us harm. These are our our neighbors. Mm -hmm. These are our school teachers, bus drivers, first responders. And so we really need to get to the bottom of how people are mobilizing from radicalization into violence and and get to the bottom of that. You were going to say these are our brothers and sisters. I don't know that we can say that anymore. We're in a weird place in this country. But I'll tell you this, Donnell Harvin, thank you for keeping us safe. Thank you, Chris. All right. We'll be right back. Don Lemon tonight with its big star, D. Lemon, right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.